We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are you holding up? What if I start calling you Rothy? Hi, Rothy. I think that would be great. That would be like if I had somehow become a professional hockey player, everybody that I know would call me that and would have called me that for years. You know what? That is entirely a hockey thing. Where everyone is just Smithy becomes Smithy and like, you know, Jones, Jonesy and Tippo Newman is like tippo Yeah, I was going to ask, do they do that with like the Finnish guys whose names are like 70% A's? Yeah. Can you just, do that? Just like 60 I's in a row, but we can, yeah. put, an, we can put a Y on the end. Of we it. love uh, E-E. Someone tweeted uh, that they hated, like, every recipe now, like, has, like, uh, like brothy or herby oh, yeah. like, as an adjective. Like, like yep. there's, some, there's some sort of, like, oh, chickeny rice. It's not chicken rice. It's got to be made into, like, oh, it's got, it's got the pizzazz of chicken. I hate to think of, like, my, whatever, nephew someday being called, like, getting a brothy beans joke in the schoolyard. Yep. We as yeah. a culture must make sure that this does not happen. All of it is a, uh, all of it feels like a remnant of the shitty Adam Rappaport run Bon Appetit that I always hated. But he's gone now. He's fired out on his ass. Ha! That's it. Yeah. All right. Mission accomplished. Well, great show. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks In for fact, being Adam with Rappaport us. is our guest this week. No, he's not. <laughs> our guest is uh, GQ Sports writer Tyler Tynes. Hi, Tyler Oh, Tynes. that's much better. That's definitely better. Yeah. Yeah. I, you don't, don't compare me to all that. You know what I mean? I'm good, though. I'm you are good. a massive upgrade. Uh, you are, one might say, uh, very truthy in uh, <laughs> your <laughs> your use of verbiage. How you doing, Tyler? Hey, man. I, I, I'm good. You know, I'm just out here in Cuomo's great state of New York, you know, inhaling all the good fumes that he's legalizing. I'm doing what I can out here. You know what I mean? Doing what I can. Yeah. They, uh, the legalization, what is the stages? You guys are both in New York. I'm not. What are the stages right now for legalization? Like, it's going to be a thing where, like, you can have it, but you, you're not going to be able to buy it for, like, two years or some shit like that. Well, well I heard Roth is, like, the druggie. So I'm going to let yes. him Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Enormous. That's, that's where I get my famous energy level that has made the podcast so popular. Uh, like- so far, I would say that we're in the stage where, um, People are much more comfortable smoking it on the street. I have seen no other indication as to like where we are or what the timetable is. This has been a great uh, couple of years for states like ostensibly legalizing stuff and then just nothing happens for right. a really long time. Yeah. So like New Jersey apparently did it too, and like my parents were like calling me and were very they were just delighted by the idea of like wouldn't it be funny if we got high, haha? <laughs> but unless. <laughs> And like, but they never actually did anything about it because, like, there's going to need to be a store in their town that, like, also sells frozen yogurt for them to be comfortable going in there. And I don't know when that happens. Like, I, I think a weed frozen yogurt emporium is practically destiny, even though I think the whole Froyo thing. But the other is thing too out. is like, who who wants to like speed this up in Jersey? Who wants to give like rich white people more access to all the good things in the world? So Jer- <laughs> Jer- Jersey can. It's like the time. one thing they don't actually have yet. Like I was like, if you have like, you should have to close a deli if you open a, a weed shop. That's just like. But do you actually know where we are in this, Tyler? Because like, all I, I know is that something passed. I think I think some stuff passed. I know the I know. Uh, you know, back when I used to be a newspaper boy in New Jersey. The weed heads out there who were very strong when, like, the legalization front were, you know, very, very in it compared to a lot of other states. And so I'm fairly sure Phil Murphy is, like, on board and has been through the state houses. And, like, the, it, it takes a while to actually enact weed legislation if you're not, let's say, Colorado and you're, or Washington and you're a trailblazer in this. And so the way I understand it, at least for New York, is that right now you can have up to, like, three pounds. 
Jesus? I, I, I don't know the person. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the actual, you know, thing is. So I don't want to buy it and just, you know, go out there and, you know, start being a drug dealer. But you, you can have a certain amount in your house as of now. It's not really legal for you to, like, buy from random people. But, like, also maybe Brooklyn's become Amsterdam, where I was walking home the other day <laughs> and local drug dealers, you know, of all, of all flavors in this, you know, in this massive coalition that we have here in Brooklyn are just out here just selling weed in the streets. Like I'm going to my local bodega and I see somebody hop out a RAV4, like a soccer mom. <laughs> and it's like, hey, here's your loud pack. And I'm like, hey man, you know what? Good for the community. Once you've crossed the RAV4 line, like once you're getting down to cars that could be described as crossovers or that have like the thing where you, there's a sensor in the back that makes the door automatically go up so you can get like car seats in there. Once that's happened, it's effectively been legalized. I'm that's actually, like, I actually am car shopping and I, I saw a RAV4 in the, in the showroom. I was like, that looks pretty sharp. Like, <laughs> absolutely. All my dad's sensors went off at the same time. Oh, look, it's so, so much foot room. I wanted to ask you about that because you were talking, you described driving like the whole, like the Kelly Stafford fleet of cars, like basically like sport utility vehicles that could be sold as Alcove Studios in New yeah. York City. Yeah, because I, we have a minivan and the AC blew and they were like, we'd like $4,000 to repair the AC. And so we were like, well, you know, it'd be cheaper getting an entirely new car. That's the better idea. <laughs> but they're all like the $70,000 Cadillac Palmero. Yeah. It's like a thousand square feet. That's just it. It's like, so, so we're looking at, like, we were like, well, we, we can escape having a minivan. We can't escape having a minivan because we still have three kids and they're still fucking big and annoying. And so we were like, okay, well, maybe we can, maybe we try the caring car. So we test drove, we test drove a Sequoia and then we test drove the goddamn Yukon. And they were shitty cars, and they were like $75,000. And I was like, why are people paying? Like, you're paying. I can't believe you're paying for this as your status symbol when it's a shit car. Like, you should at least, like, it should at least, like, massage your balls while you're driving or something. Remind you, these these type of people that are looking for cars like Drew, these are now the drug dealers in New York City, right? Like, I I know white people have, like, you know, made this a very fearful thing. You know, the black community is going to come out here and it's these big scary guys who are, who are your drug dealers. They're terrorizing your city. Well, you know what's happened? Drew, the Drew Maggeries of the world and their, mother, <laughs> and their, and their, and their motherfucking sequoias are, are driving down Bushwick Avenue and they are giving weed out to the community. And honestly, I think it's time we start criminalizing white people for that. It's me, <laughs> it's me and John Boehner in Nate Newton's delivery bread truck with 50 pounds of weed I in will the say that the, the times that I've actually purchased, like, weed in states where it's legal it's extremely like it's like going to the apple store kind of except everybody there is very obviously high but it's like it's a good service experience because there's like everyone there is like the type like you can pick the employee that's the type of high that you want to be like and then like and they'll walk you through it or whatever but it's very much like a retail experience like what Tyler is describing to me sounds more like yeah that's I mean I think that like if it's gonna work here like it should be like I would like to see completely harmless hand-to-hand deals happening outside of places well honestly I would just like the brother at the bodega to have a loud pack you know if I can go in there and get me a bacon egg and cheese I should also be able to get me some ooey gooey I I don't know man let's let's make it let's make it a system that New York can actually get behind the problem here is though is that when you go to these places like Denver you go to you know Washington State or what may have you I walk up in these stores and it's white college students who look like the University of Georgia handing me some weed. And you know what? Uh, you know, just for me and where I come from, that feels a little bit off kilter. 
don't say know you don't want to buy from someone with bangs. Is that what you're? I'm saying. I'm saying a soccer mom and Lululemon tights are not the you know clientele I'd like to see handing me a brownie. Is <laughs> all I'm trying to say. No, I I agree because I one time I did in Colorado. I went to the dispensary and I I got and I walked out and it was so easy and I was like, I was like, that's it. Like, shouldn't I like have had to like. I, uh, shouldn't I have had to like like go through like eight different doors Ooh. and like and like had my ID fax from one cop to another and like <laughs> then like had like my fucking retina scan like I'm in fucking Blade Runner. Well, like, or some I shit don't like I don't want like the white kids on NBA Twitter to be the ones that are then selling me weed, right? Like right. If, if the kids who are super hype about Luka Doncic being the next wave of basketball <laughs> are the same people servicing my community, I might have to write a letter to my congressman because I I don't know if this is really something I want to partake in. I think there's a really good pivot there for, like, smoke with Brian, though. Like, now that he's been banned for being too aggressive with people about his basketball takes, (laughs) can transition. That's the last last person you want to smoke some weed with. (laughs) Yeah, if a a Luka Doncic fanboy uh, sold me weed, that would be a cheap assist. It wouldn't be like Larry Bird selling it to me. I wouldn't, you know. I just would not appreciate it. Hey, uh, we should talk about actual sports, because uh, okay. there's something I, I didn't want to talk to you, uh, Tyler, because you uh, you're at GQ now, you're at The Ringer, and you just did uh, an interview uh, with Matthew. Uh, I'm going to get, I hope I get it wrong. I hope I get it right. Uh, <laughs> I hope you get it wrong. Perniciaro, but... uh, the director of uh, Moment of Truth, the it's the Amazon docuseries about the shooting death of James Jordan, Michael Jordan's father, and I, I, I haven't seen the series yet, but I when it happened, and ever since then, I was always under the impression that Michael Jordan's father was robbed and shot randomly when he pulled into a rest stop, like to take a nap or something like that. But that's not really true, is it? So, like, that's like the tale, right? Like, that's yes. like that's like the thing that we would like to believe has happened. But like, it, it is massively complicated. It, it is something like in, in any almost any other case involving black people has to, you know, deal with race and racism. And so, it, it becomes a thing where, you know, do we really know who did this crime? We don't. Do we know why James Jordan stopped on the side of the road in the middle of the night when he's Michael Jordan's father and he was about maybe let's say twenty yards or so, give or take, from an actual hotel? No, we, we don't. Do we know why someone dumped him in a river and they found him two weeks later? We don't know that either. And so what we did find out is that there were two people that are kind of close to the case that seem like they fit in a time frame for that county in North Carolina where if you were Black or if you were of any sort of, you know, Native heritage, you very much were going to be criminalized in that county. And so they found someone of Native heritage. They found somebody Black who were connected to this case. And it seems like one of the two got set up. And the one who got set up by all, you know, accounts and versions, you know, including this documentary, it seems like would be the black guy. And so there have been, you know, all these different people who are trying to free him for the last 20 years. He hasn't really gotten a fair trial where now the native person who, you know, ended up siding with police, he's going to get out of jail in like another year or two. Like he's got parole. And so the documentary style was very complicated and it used a bit of archival from WRAL down there that's never been seen before. Interviews have never been seen before, and it's beautiful, but it was a documentary like so many other documentaries that has, you know, complicated, you know, usages that it's not always, it's not a clean fit all the way. So right. it's something worth watching, but especially if you don't know about the case, it's something worth watching. It feels like it's, it's resonant right now because of uh, the murder of Dante Wright uh, this week and obviously uh, the Chauvin uh, trial that's going on and all of that, and particularly in light of the fact that you know, we just had, after Dante Wright was murdered, um, 
the Cubs, I'm sorry, the Twins uh, did not play that night. The Timberwolves did not play that night. Those weren't boycotts. Those were uh, deliberately postponed and then rescheduled. So didn't have to feel the Bucks walking off the court during the bubble, or not, I should say, when they refused to come out of the locker room during the bubble, which was a spontaneous thing, which led to other boycotts uh, right in that sort of small window. Here it was a bit more formal, and it seems like it, it seems like it's already been pre-snuffed out. I don't know if that's the right word for it, Tyler. What was your reaction to um, those particular uh, temporary stoppages in gameplay this week? I think I've been <clears throat> fairly, um, at least public, about how I feel about these things. Um, you know, when I used to work at The Ringer, there was a big piece called The Great NBA Awakening um, that was written, I think, in September of last year that really sort of untangled a lot of this where when you look at it historically, and, and when you look at it, uh, especially in the last decade of protests, it's about time for the NBA, right? Like, right. it's about time the NBA did something at least close to what looks like radical action for a league that has decided since 2000, and I don't know, one or four, that it was going to adopt this sort of black mantra to a way of getting paid and globalizing the game. Because in the way that we understand the NBA historically, this was the league that in the 50s weren't really letting black people come and play basketball. In the 60s, we're using, you know, Bill Russell as somebody as this grand patriarch of, you know, racial inclusion in Boston, which actually wasn't the truth. In the 70s, they didn't want the ABA and the fast style of black basketball to actually be part of the league. In the 80s, they put Magic against Bird. In the 90s, it was the Jordan show until it was time for protest. And then we kind of decided Allen Iverson was the coolest person in the world. And the only person in the world, well, not the only, but the most important person in the world who did not agree with that was David Stern. <laughs> right. And That's so, and so it, we implemented a, a dress code. We now have this NBA runway as the subsequent thing that has come out of this. And the NBA, you know, by all intents and purposes, are like, yeah, sure. Market the game. Globalize the game. Do what you want to do. The black stars of this world will be the greatest thing that has ever come to basketball. And they've sort of tripped into this in so many ways. Not to say there are not people in the NBA that are helping and facilitating and do, doing community activism, you know, into the umpteenth. But it's to say that as a global brand, the NBA has decided somewhere in the last 10 years that protest was a thing they weren't really going to endorse. Protests in the way that we should believe protests should exist. Disruption, upending the status quo, things of right. that nature, right? Discomfort. Discomfort, yeah. right? Like the point of protest is to make white people uncomfortable. If you have not accomplished that as the bare minimum, what have you actually done? And so from 2016 to now, the NBA has said, oh, please do not protest. Remember, we have the oldest anthem policy on the books. Oh, please do not get with this and do not you know, kneel for the anthem because our fans and our coaches should understand more than the NFL. Like, we're the good guys here. When they've actually yes. had a much longer history of being the bad guys. And so it should be of no surprise last year that eventually some of those guys are like, hey, man, this shit sucks. We're tired of being in this bubble. The world is falling apart. White people kind of have decided they care about us for maybe six months. We should be a part of this in some way. And instead, the NBA decided it was a commercialization attempt. It was, a, you know, it was an exercise in branding that, yes, we love Black Lives Matter. That, yes, we can, you can put names on the back of your jerseys. That, yes, we are the league for you know, the Black part of the sporting community. And in reality, these are just PSAs. These are just commercials. When you are the Timberwolves or the Nets and you put on T-shirts that says Liberty for All, what the fuck are we talking about? Yeah, I think that's the, the issue with it, too, is that, like, the... Because I think you're right in that, like, the idea of, like, that kind of, like, a liberal version of inclusion is very much, like, a part of the brand. 
But at some point, like, you're going to get called on that. If you keep saying we care about you, like, you matter, your voices matter, like, at some point, if that voice is saying something that does not align with, like, corporate goals in terms of growth, then that's a challenge for the league because they're going to have to, like, really come up against whether or not they actually believe and are willing to put their back behind the stuff that they've espoused. And, like, this feels like a necessary bit of uncomfort, un, uncomfort, uncomfort. <laughs> You're a writer. This feels like, let's try that again. This feels like a necessary amount of discomfort, but I don't necessarily have the faith that like, there's the will to carry it to its logical conclusion, which is like following through on the shit that is otherwise easily like slow. But see, around. I disagree, Roth, because why should the NBA right now feel uncomfortable? The NBA has played its hand very perfectly, whereas they will never be the NFL, right? So they'll never be considered this conservative bastion of like willful hate towards somebody who's not white. They'll never be able to beat what the NFL has like made as their brand, right? That's disrespectful to Julian Edelman, sir. He yeah. just retired. <laughs> His legacy. Well, that'll just be the back third of the show. Just We're retired. Be He's doing a the- Hall of Famer, sir. <laughs> I'm sorry, I mean to interrupt. Go ahead. But don't you think it's like similar to the way that like the Democrats have a similar spot where they're like, as as the other guys get worse, it's like you have this territory all to yourself, but then you also like you have to serve this constituency that, or maybe you don't. I mean, maybe it's the sort of thing where like if the other ones are repellent enough, then like all you need to do is not be that repellent. Right. The logic here says that within the framework of radical protest, within the framework of radical disruption, one would assume. If you, if you have been positing for a certain amount of years that you are the biggest, blackest thing in modern sports, you should probably give a fuck about the black people within your labor pool. You should probably give a fuck that there are not enough black coaches on your sidelines, even though the NFL gets more stick than you do. You should be concerned there's only, even though, you know, compared to anybody else, you have the only black owner in sports. It is an owner that has specifically sided with a version of capitalism that has not gotten, you know, a specific sect of blackness further in its credo. And so if you are the NBA, again, you've played the perfect hand because all the white boys on the internet who love your sport and want to break your sport down, they're always going to side with this shit, right? All the white boys who work within your game are going to side with this shit, right? And, and no matter what, you'll never be the NFL. Martin Luther King wasn't somebody saying, yeah, you know who I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of the conservatives. No, he said, I'm afraid of the moderates. Yep. And that Fair is right. what the NBA has become, saying that, well, we don't really want y'all to protest. And LeBron James would say, oh, I love the Star Spangled Banner. And everybody can kind of get along because we all like this game. And we all feel a proximity to basketball that we can't feel to any other major sport. It feels like the everyman's game in a way that soccer might feel for so many other countries. The NBA gets off on that. Saying so much that, oh, Adam Silver's not David Stern. Oh, well, this crop of players are more aware than the last crop of players. Oh, our guys are somewhat feigning toward caring about protests. Why y'all mad at us? Yeah, I mean, because uh, last year, after the Bucks uh, didn't come out of the locker room, they sat down because they wanted to sit down with government officials in Wisconsin and then negotiated, at least at the time, the idea that the Bucks arena would be an early voting site. And it was like, okay, that's like, that, that is productive and that, that has accomplished something. Those plans got scrapped in October and it wasn't used as an early voting site. And then now we're at this point uh, where uh, the killing of Dante Wright happened and you know, and there, there's these sort of formal postponements, but it's it. We didn't even get to the level of discomfort that the Bucks caused in order to have uh, even like this this like 
at least respectable amount of lip service paid to them, you know? And that to me is, that to me is discouraging, I think. I think my question becomes like, who was uncomfortable, right? You done kept these black folks up in this hole for about three months up in this bubble. They can't go nowhere. They can't do nothing. And they wanted a day off. You know, I think, right. I think if you call somebody in that Bucks locker room, I think if you call somebody who was on the phone with them boys every week, like so many different black advocates around the country were, the Stacey Abrams of the world, the movement for black lives people, there were people on the phones with the coaches and players literally every week trying to force them to see the grandiose movement vision. And so many of the people involved did not want to actually be a part of that. So many people involved very much put the benchmark at, we need to vote. Voting is the thing that we need to do because within that last decade of protest, the last four years were specifically, you know, harboring an angst towards one person who was the figurehead of a movement of conservatism. Like the people in the NBA were mad at Donald Trump. They weren't mad really at police. They weren't really mad at the entire systemic issue. They were like, oh, Donald Trump is the face of this. I'm mad at him. Everybody should know this sucks. That should be good enough. When the reality is you had coaches who coached in the NBA last year, head coaches who did not believe that defunding the police was a thing that made sense. Right. So if that's who, if that's who's running these teams, and you have people on these teams, Jalen Brown, George Hill, Malcolm Brogdon, et cetera, who believe there is merit in policies like that, you are never going to get across the bridge to where we need you to be to actually do something worthwhile. <laughs> Drew? Well, I thought you were going to say something wrong. Oh, sorry. I, no, I mean, I think... <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, oh, Tyler's right. Yeah. I, I mean, no, I mean, I think that's that's it. I mean, that that's like the, the challenge of like corporate politics versus like actual people politics. That yeah. like this is just, there's that line to cross that like is going to be easier to do individually. Or I mean, I think that this is like the protests that were happening when, you know, all of the, like last summer after the George Floyd killing that like... That was explicitly about police in a way that I think that the, you know, the women's march was not about, like, if that was about Donald Trump and about losing an election and a sort of, like, national scale politics, that, like, the way that the movement seems to be heading now is more localized and is more about, like, in terms of about, you know, actual policy about policing. But that's also, like, as you said, like, that's a confrontation that's, like, more difficult. You're not necessarily going to solve it by voting. And the other thing, I mean, too, a lot of these are one-party cities, it's and the, always like, been localized. The way yeah. we have done the movement for Black Lives, the way Black Lives Matter began, it was very. It's it, it's the fact that there were several local chapters under an umbrella system, and somebody answered to somebody else. It was always hyper localized, and that's the way they wanted to be because they wanted a decentralized movement so that individual counties, locales, regions could get the actual work they need. What Sacramento needs is much different from what Philadelphia needs. And the actual activism roots in Philly and Oakland and Baltimore and Memphis and Charlotte and places like that are much different than Minneapolis, than San Antonio, than pick another place, right? And so the individual needs have to come into account as well. And so my whole thing becomes like, I looked at the George Floyd protests last year, the people who were out there for Breonna Taylor, the people who were out there for Ahmaud Arbery and so on and so forth, are at those protests. I drove 900 miles and saw those protests at the height of it. And I just don't believe you. I don't believe the white people who came out last summer. I don't believe the white people who decided to march. I was in DC a few days after Trump moved those protesters off the streets and it felt like Coachella. 
it felt like a caricature. And I say this not to be rude, not to be critical, but I say this because where are those same white people now? Where were they last fall? Where were they last winter? Where were they before Dante Wright got killed? Because this is the thing about consistency, right? There has, you know, Steve Nash said this yesterday that, oh, we would have canceled this game if there was a plan to progress that was already in place. There has not been a plan to progress for the black body of the United States of America since our people were dragged here, kidnapped, and placed on this shore. And so my question is the same question has always been, where are y'all going to be next? Because... If y'all was outside last summer, we shouldn't have y'all with a problem being outside this summer and the summer after that, because this is a lifetime fight. Meeting racism is a lifetime fight, and it's only the tip of the iceberg. Like police brutality in, in this entire exchange is only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, there was a canny sort of shift. Um, Cause you know, like once Mitt Romney is seen like at those protests, you know that it's safe, like in a sort of like, oh, okay, I can, my my white neighbors aren't going to get mad at me if I go to these protests because it's like yeah. I'm okay. I I'm voicing my concern, but I don't really mean it. Like you said, when the status uh, quo and, is protest, right? Right, and then, everybody's and then, safe. And then you know you get you know you get this candy thing where the NFL did an even worse job than the NBA because they put like it's on us at the end of the end zone. Yeah, they were type. they were like scrupulously vague with it in the way that only the NFL could be too, where they're like let's be nice, like that's in the back of every end zone now. And I even got I even. You know, I even rolled my eyes a bit when they, you know, when they had say their names or say say her name and a hashtag on the back of the jersey because it was never, they always wanted to emphasize the victims, but they never, ever emphasized why those names had to be said. Like, this is the thing for know, me, right? Like, I actually wasn't even that mad at the NFL because it was their most honest attempt at this probably in the history of them trying to do the thing. Right. Whether they had to be forced into it or not. My, you know, when I look at the NBA and I see how much meddling is involved in the nuance of these things, oh, y'all can only put certain names in the back of y'all jerseys. Yeah. Uh, oh, we only talking about voting. Oh, we about to have an upward? Call Obama. Let's get him on the phone. See what we can figure out. You know, uh, like the NFL has always been very, very clear where they stand on this. And so I've never really been like, like, you know, in a rapture or like mad right, you about. You weren't expecting anything expect, from them in right, that regard. I'm not expecting the NFL to be good on this. I'm not expecting the, the, the NHL to be good on this. I'm not expecting Major League Baseball to stop acting like it's 1917. <laughs> I am expecting the alleged, the, the biggest, blackest league, as they are telling me in the rest of the world, the people who are allegedly are supposed to get it to actually make me believe it. Or you're actually worse than the people who are telling us up front they don't give a fuck about us. I don't ever have to worry about where the NFL is. The NFL told me a long time ago, they don't give a fuck about me. The NBA is trying to tell me a different story. So I'd like to see them lie. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's take a quick break and come back and talk about less substantive issues, even though I quite enjoy talking to you about that, Ty. We'll take a break. We're back. Hey, we're going to go through some fun back stuff with our guest, Tyler Tynes. But first, I want to ask Tyler, uh, since Tyler is a nascent Phillies fan, uh, first of all, uh, the Eagles were exposed by the Athletic uh, this week. They were so exposed. They were so exposed uh, because uh, it was about it was about how Doug Peterson was fired and how uh, Howie Roseman has sort of cemented his uh, stranglehold over that organization strictly by being Smithers to uh, 
Jeffrey Lurie, <laughs> Chester Burns. Burns. The yeah. thing that fucking killed me was that Jeffrey Lurie, uh, from the beginning of Doug Peterson's tenure, made uh, Peterson meet with him every Tuesday of every game week to go over shit. Like a fucking kindergarten student. Right. Yeah. And I can't, I can't even imagine how awful that would be. I would want to fucking die. But you, you saw it on his face. You saw it on his face. Like, yeah. You saw it on his face. <laughs> yeah. The, the visor couldn't hide his, yeah. his disgust and contempt for his very own, very own boss. Do you, are you optimistic no. about the Eagles moving forward? No. Why, I mean, I, why, why should I be? Didn't even finish I, the question. I think, <laughs> I, think, I think part of being a Philadelphian, especially my generation of Philadelphian, is understanding that we have seen enough shit to know what's real and what's not. That 2017 run, I don't think it's a lot of Philadelphians who would tell you anytime during a the run, they were like, yeah, dog, we about to win the Super Bowl. Like, there were at least six times during the Super Bowl sitting, I, I watched it in Philly with people I consider family, six times at least where folks were just like, oh, we are going to shit the bed. Like, I, I, like, <laughs> this game's so many, over. There were so many times, in the Minnesota game, First goddamn possession. Uh, 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 whoever's the quarterback for, for Minnesota? Is it Kirk Cousins still? Kirk um, Cousins. Case, it was Case Keenum. So I have it's, no it's other Case memory Keenum of that there. season. I don't, I don't know what happened in that game. It's Case Keenum then. Case Keenum came out and walked him down the field, got a touchdown. Everybody in the goddamn stadium was like, oh, this, it's over for us. This was cute. Nick Foles did as much as he could. It's over for us. We can't actually get back to the Super Bowl. And it was. My Vikings actually won that game and won the Super Bowl that year. So hey, it, was, it was very nice. It was really lot, happy. A lot of somebody else. Um, I don't even remember the score. Nobody remembers. <laughs> nobody. Uh, nobody reminds me of the score. It's very, very. Nice. I think, a, like a, and that's a part of this, right? It's like we watched Allen Iverson lose to Kobe and Shaq, right? We watched whoever that pitcher was in Game Six of the 1993 World Series. You know, give it up to Joe Morgan, right? Like we watched Donovan McNabb be allegedly drunk in the huddle and overthrow, you know, Terrell Owens with four minutes left in the game in the Super Bowl in 2004, right? We saw Philly's World Series, but we should have had like three of them. And so we, we've ruined that whole team. The Flyers can't win. And so am I to actually believe that the Super Bowl was any more than a fluke when we've been three times, four times in history and won once? Nah, man. I mean, I know who owns my team. <laughs> like, I know who runs my team. I'm not optimistic about Philadelphia sports because that would then make me like a Bostonian. And I refuse <laughs> to be any closer in proximity to Massachusetts than I have to be. But Jeffrey Lurie runs a green stadium, uh, Tyler. He cares about the world. Good for him. <laughs> that was like the most beautiful gesture of like liberal ownership that you could imagine is putting those wind turbines on the stadium that never worked and then just quietly taking but it. But that's the thing, right? And it, and it goes back to our previous conversation because a big part of this is like our actual press. And if most of the people in the sporting press especially are super white, um, they love people like Jeffrey Lurie. Right. Like they're yeah. very much like, oh, Jeffrey Lurie and Malcolm Jenkins are, are the radical arm of protest in the <laughs> NFL. I have wa Mike Sielski is a columnist in Philadelphia Inquirer. He literally wrote a column saying that Malcolm Jenkins was more or less the better black person than Colin Kaepernick because he did this thing with class. That is what we are discussing here. Right. Like, right. why the fuck should I be optimistic about the Eagles when the Eagles have never done a good thing for me in my entire life? Well, they did win one Super Bowl. Yeah, that, and look, and look, and that, and that was great. I wish they did it like with a black quarterback. Like that's the only time Philly really is good. And I'm gonna keep saying Nick Foles is black because at least he listening to Meek Mill and Carson Wentz wasn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you can't get more white than Carson Wentz. So by default, anyone on the other side of his whiteness is gonna look 
less white by comparison. I mean, yeah. and the one thing that Lurie was like, they, like that story, that athletic story, like pegged which draft picks he basically dictated to Roseman, and the only one of them that was not obviously a disaster on its face was Jalen Hurts. So maybe secretly, my man accidentally, my man tripped yeah. into it. You know, and look, I, good for Howie Roseman having a backup plan. All right, because otherwise he'd be stuck with that fucking goofy kid who loves the Midwest more than he loves a real city. Um, or, or would, would you put Howie Roseman on your Mount Rushmore of Eagles GMs? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he had been the damn GM for like 20 years. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even remember another, like, that's how young I am now. Like, I'm only 27. Like, I don't remember another GM that's not Howie Roseman. He that's pulled like a Marty Hurley, of- didn't he? He pulled a Marty Hurley where he went away for a bit and then came back. Jeffrey Lurie demoted him and put him in the basement of the Novacare Center. And like a phoenix out the ashes, he shot Chip Chip Kelly and came back to power. (laughs) It's the number one type of job security to have. Like, as long as you never turn in your pass, it's not over. It's not over, man. And look, to a certain extent, I actually commend Howie Roseman because there is a certain level of successful human being that you have to be to not get fired. Right. Like anyone who can keep a job, I don't care what job it is for 20 years and you don't get fired. I need to learn some shit from you. It's more impressive when you're also not very good at the job like that to me is like the real value add. But that's like that is I mean, that's you see it with Jack Easterby is the same thing. You understand it as a service gig and you know who you're serving. Well, and in this case, it's that audience of one. Let's not bring Howie Roseman within the same. All right. Right. So he's not like a grifty megachurch. No, don't get me wrong. He's definitely a grifty guy. But the problem here is that like his grift is with draft picks, right? Like his grift is like with cap analysis. Like I don't think Howie Roseman in so many iterations of how a general manager can exist within major sports is bad at his job. I just think he, like so many other people who run NFL franchises, is stupid. That's all. That's all. Yeah, Roth, I was gonna I was gonna make a Sean Fennessy analogy, but then you had to go and bring in the dime store preacher and you went too far. No, sir. Well, I want to hear the fantasy one though. Is this like a comparison to you're know, like you're like pulling some obscure character out of season three of the well, wire? I should just ask Tyler, because he used to work at the ringer. How was your experience at the ringer? Were you happy to leave the ringer? I was very happy to leave the ringer. Um I think I think the way that it has been portrayed in the New York Times is very clear that anyone who's going to leave the ringer at this point in time will probably end up being happy to leave the ringer uh, unless you are of a selected class that works at the ringer. Um, I, enjoy, you know, to a certain extent, I enjoyed my time at the ringer. You know, I got to do podcasts. I got to write whatever I wanted to a certain extent. Um, I think I grew as a writer. Um, I won't tell you it was comfortable. I think it is very clear at this point that it is not in the best interest of black people to work there. Um, and I don't think that's anything far gone. I think what the reporting would show is that it's not in the best benefit of black people to work there. Could, um, could you be more specific and, and uh, talk about times you weren't comfortable there? I mean, no, nah, you know, I'm, no. I'm, 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 I ain't going to do it. I, I, I think it's, it's no point, you know, because nah, I, mean, I figured me, me explaining like what happened to me at the ringer it's not going to do anything because I think the thing that a lot of people are starting to realize is that people like Bill Simmons in this world are Teflon and it takes a certain level of talent to be Teflon in an industry to the way that he is. Um, I've only met Bill once in my life and he took me to a chicken and waffles restaurant the first time I got to Los Angeles. Was it good? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) But if I may ask a follow-up, was it weird? Yes, of course. Any, any, <laughs> any, any white man going to take me to a chicken waffle restaurant is going to be weird. Was the, was the restaurant his idea? 
Yeah, of course. Um, okay. <laughs> the, thing, the thing about this, though, is like, I don't give Bill a lot of shit only because I think the way that we try to characterize people like Bill Simmons is that he's unique and he's extremely not. Um, I'm black and I work in a press that has never given any sort of space to black people. This is not to say that Bill Simmons has done something special or radical. It's to say that there are a lot of people who are Bill Simmons and you just haven't had the reporting on these people yet. And so to sort of make him some sort of special brand of racist or special brand of misogynist is to truly ignore the fact that like, it's everyone involved. Like, I ain't gonna be super mad at Bill because I, I expect white people to fuck me over. So like, I can't be super mad at Bill because that's what the people who run these companies are, are really designed to do. Like right. Jonah Peretti and all the other white people who run these companies. Have you heard of a good white man running these companies? No. And so no. I don't get too wrapped up about it, but at the end of the day, it is the game. If you are black and you work in journalism, you are going to get the shit under the stick a lot of the time. That's just been my experience. It's been the experience of the community I come from. And it's not changing anytime soon until ownership of these places looks a lot more diverse or at the bare minimum, these white people get the fuck out the way and let other people who do not look like them actually dominate a lot of the space of the thing that they are creating. Yeah, to me, uh, you know, one of the things about Simmons, and I was a fan of Simmons at the turn of the century and all that, uh, you know, I, I thought he would grow as an artist, but it turned out that his real ambition was just to be an ordinary rich asshole, which he became. He, he doesn't write anymore. And he goes in the podcast and bitches about cancel culture and, and like wishes that like Jim Nance had zanier jokes in his arsenal when a Japanese dude wins the Masters. So it was like he aspired to be this ordinary. And you're right. He's not he's he's hardly alone. In fact, he's he's more ordinary now than he was when he started his career. And that's discouraging. I, I wish that. I wish that that weren't the case. Then again, I'm a hater and I enjoy hating. But that's racism. the thing, right? Is that like Toni Morrison kind of said that, you know, racism, and I'm paraphrasing here, that racism is ordinary. That the folly of racism and the function of racism is a distraction. And so like, the science of what we're doing here is, oh, I'm gonna spend my whole career proving someone like Bill Simmons wrong. I don't have the time, right? Like, right. oh, I'm gonna spend the next amounts of, you know, next, you know, times of my month giving interviews about how these white people throughout the field have did me wrong. I don't got the time. Because the thing I have learned, at least in the last seven or eight years, or really 10 years, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a young guy, but I've been doing this in so many ways for almost 10 years now, is that I do not give these white people my energy. I don't. Because at the end of the day, it's going to drive me insane. All of this is a function for something else. You are using jobs to get from one place to another, to feed your family, to be a symbol of a type of work that you want to pursue. If you want to have fun in sports journalism, there is plenty of space for you. If you want to stand for something, there is plenty of space for you. I've decided that my work has to mean something to me and that the work that I want to do and I continue to try to do even now at GQ is to offer a pedestal to a version of athletes that have never been seen in our national press consistently, unless it was done by black folks. And so I don't get too, too bent up about people like ben, Bill Simmons or people that work at the Ringer or people who have worked at any other white company I've worked at because I'm always going to experience them. And to give them any oxygen is to take away a sliver of time that could be used in helping black people. And I honestly refuse to do so. It's extremely healthy. And I almost want to like write it and like put it under my pillow. <laughs> so that I have it. So I have it as a reminder. To that end, uh, are you ready to play Dead or Canceled, Tyler Tynes? Yeah, this is the stupid part of the show now. I mean, yeah. hey. It's time for Dead or Canceled. You ready? 
I, I guess so. All right, here's the deal. I'm going to give you the name of a person. you got to tell me if they're dead or they're canceled. If they're dead, that takes precedence. You got it? All right. All right, tell me if they're dead or canceled. Bernie Madoff, is he dead or canceled? <laughs> this is right on the news cycle. Well, Don't <laughs> give it away. He's, he's, I'm not. He's, I, look, I'll read the news, damn it. He obviously did. So, <laughs> <laughs> But he's like, he's not cold yet as we record this. This is, what, this is the difference, the Drew McGarry difference. <laughs> yeah, but by the time it posts... It'll be a little bit colder, you know? And then, oh, well, little rigor mortis. Legend. Yeah. You can bounce a tennis ball off of the corpse and all that. Barry's stuff. got some sort of, like, whatever, double bank theory in terms of, like, that Madoff made it possible for the Mets to eventually get Francisco Lindor 13 years later. I'm not sure that that's enough to really balance it all out. The final piece of the puzzle. They're destined yeah. to win a championship now. <laughs> hey, uh, and also, in your honor... Tyler, uh, we have a Philadelphia edition of Guy of the Week. We always pick a guy of the week, a random guy from sports history to remember. And this week's Guy of the Week, do you remember this guy, Tyler Tynes? It's Clarence Weatherspoon. Do you remember Clarence Weatherspoon, Tyler? No, no. Yeah, he's too young. He's too young. He's too young. There was a Clarence Weatherspoon the third playing college basketball a couple years ago, which is always a nice experience for me, just a reminder of how close I am to the grave. But yeah, you would uh, you would maybe remember Weatherspoon as like a type of dude, Tyler. Like he was like, you remember those like pit power forwards that were completely rectangular, like Dewan Blair types. We love Dewan Blair. We love Dewan yeah. Blair. So Weatherspoon was like, he went to Southern Miss, but he was like spiritually a Dewan Blair type. First round going, pick. Oh man, yeah, yeah I had dude. some good seasons, but he was like, I was like six seven. I don't know if he could dunk or not. Like he was like that type of dude. But oh, I, re- I remember this dude. Okay. I was going through like I was going through the the Sixers draft history to find just the choicest guy, and I was worried about Tyler's <laughs> age. So I was like, I was like, well, Thaddeus Young, maybe he's too recent. Would That's act, would act. I shit on Thaddeus Young like once a week to to to, <laughs> to beat to beat writers who cover the Bulls in Chicago. I literally was, had a conversation about Thaddeus Young last night. Wow, <laughs> wow, last <laughs> night. And then I was going. I was like, maybe Samuel D'Alembert. Also, uh, you, 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 you would, you would, have fucked up on that one too. You'd have fucked up on that one too. So I know <laughs> no. about Big Sammy D. No, I want you to remember the guy. Yeah. I don't want you this to not idea. remember. Well, if you wanted me to remember the guy, you wouldn't pick somebody who was off the Sixers by 1998. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you want to answer a fun bag question? <laughs> let's let's answer a fun bag question. Oh, you know what? I'll give you. Yeah, I'm going to give you one that will also be too. You'll be too young for Dan wrote in. What's the first song you downloaded on Napster? Did you ever use Napster? I don't, use, I don't use no Napster. Man. All right, that's all right. Okay. No uh, Andy writes in. What's the appropriate amount of dinnerware someone should own if they live alone? At minimum, it should be a set of two plates, bowls, glasses, and whatever else in the event someone else should have a companion over. Post COVID, of course, you live alone, Tyler. What is the appropriate amount of dinnerware for you to have in your kitchen? You said that in such a way, like in some ways, like you said, like you live alone, like. Turned your nose. Off. I did some mean ways, that. But, 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 but in some ways, you said like you live alone. And you're jealous. And well, jealous. Yeah, this was, remember that this episode started with him being like, "So a minivan shopping with the family, right?" And everybody barfs at the same time. What are you gonna do? Like, yeah. So it sounds okay, Tyler. Think, you're you know. an aging spinster. What? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm somebody who 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 enjoys hosting, or at least enjoys having my friends over, and so I'm never I'm not I'm never one who's like, yeah, let me just have like the two target plates. And like four bowls, and I'll just wash them. You know, I'm not fucking 21, 
living in Atlantic yep. City, New Jersey at a newspaper job. Like, we can afford a few things now. So, like, I, I think you should have ample dinnerware. I think you should have enough cups and bowls. Like, the, the cup runneth over in so many ways, right? Like, you should have enough shit oh. in your house that if dishes are dirty, you still have enough shit to serve somebody else. Yeah, there's a really um, a moment from The Simpsons that I saw as a kid that I didn't realize would stick with me when um, it's like the front of uh, Lenny's house falls off and you can see him just sitting there in his underpants eating beans at the table out of the can and he says, please don't tell anyone how I live. <laughs> and as like a young person starting out of the city, like that was basically my baseline was just being like, if somehow the front of this like shitty apartment building were to fall down and you were revealed at the table, like... Are you using a fork that needs to be washed? Yeah, like a fork yeah. that like doesn't that you can't just throw away. Did it come in a little plastic sleeve with a napkin, a plastic spoon, a little salt and pepper thing in a packet? Like if so, you need to step your game up. See, yeah, all see. all I had was like all I had was a foreman grill and like I would like toast bread on it. Like I I had no like like whatever dinnerware I had, my fucking mom bought for me. Like I had no <laughs> Well, for see, I feel like, you know, if your house looked like Bill Dotrieve's house from King of the Hill, then we got an actual problem. <laughs> like, this, this reminds me of, I think it was a moment, uh, I think either a year or two years ago, a young lady came on the internet, you know, on Kevin Durant's internet and said, oh, you know, I don't wash my legs when I take a shower. <laughs> Shit like that remind me of that. Like, it's a, lot, it's a lot of dirty white people out here, man. All right, wash your goddamn legs when you take a shower. Have some clean silverware in your house. Don't wear nothing dirty to bed. Like, if you done wore that shit outside all day, take that shit off before you get in your bed. (laughs) Tyler, I hate to tell you this, but I also never wash my legs. I am the dirty white person you speak of. Watch your, got, watch your goddamn legs. This is this is a Twitter argument that happens like every two months or something. I let the shampoo lather run down. You don't wash your legs. Uh, I thought you were doing a bit. Maybe the upper, like, I don't go down to my shins. I'd have what to bend you, over. What That's you doing, they're, man? They're also attached to your body, man. No, it's just you're, you're, getting, you're getting in your bed dirty. You're getting in your bed with your wife, with your babies in the next room. You're not clean. You got to That's wash fine. your legs. You got That's to wash fine. your legs. I pee, in the, I pee in the shower, too. You'll live. That's it's fine. You got to wash your legs. Come on, Hey, uh, Nick writes in. Nick Richard, what is... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We have another question. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'll take it. I'll take the shit. But I'm still not going to wash my legs. Like, you can yell at me all you want. I'm just not... I can't be bothered with it. I don't... It's, I don't give a shit. Is this, is this like a part a... of old manism? It's like, it's like once you reach a certain age as a man, do you just stop giving a shit about certain... Like, did you ever wash yeah. your legs? No! Like, how many never. more... How many Unless, more reps do I really have in my calves? Unless just the, leave them be. The exception was if I was coming back from football practice and there was like visible mud on my legs, like I would make sure that was gone, like cleaned you off. Played, you played sports? I played ball. I played ball for 10 years. Oh, I was a college athlete. Col- so, really? Yeah. yeah. So oh, all man. my football takes, all my football takes, I, I was on the field. You he actually played the game. I a man was, in the arena. I was in the trenches. legs. I fought. Disgusting knees. I just assumed I, all the white people in the dead spin cinematic universe was just like, I don't know, man, like making cheese during college. I, I don't know. You know I think that's fair. I don't know. Yeah, you're man. half right. But yeah, like, no like, like wearing flannels and making cheese. That's like, that's, why would you that's, bring that that's up? The, wow. Why would you bring that's, it that, up? That's, Tyler? The, that's the dead spin I thought, <laughs> I thought existed for the longest time. I thought, you know, flannels and cheese. Nick writes in, what is the age cutoff for being able to be in the front row at concerts? I saw churches in the front row at age 28. It was one of the best nights of my life. I just feel like I'm nearing the end of when I'm allowed to be in the front row without being a 
dick. I don't know if I agree with Nick's uh, is this, premise is here. This, is this y'all audience? These are the type of people that read y'all website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, this is this. These are our readers. <laughs> yup. These. Are- I feel like I'm not a big concert person. Uh, I really don't like crowds. What do you mean? Um, you don't like I, I don't like. I don't really like. I don't like crowds that much. I don't like being congested. I don't feel like. I don't like feeling like I don't have an, like I can get out of somewhere. And so, uh, if I go this to is a pre-COVID, concert, this is pre-COVID, right? Extremely pre-COVID. Okay. okay. I, so, if I go to a concert, which does happen occasionally, I will very much spend the money and go sit in like a VIP section above the concert and watch the show. So, like when Beyonce came to Philly years ago. My cousins would always do this. And so when I was in DC working for SB Nation, Migos came to Silver Spring and they came to the Eagle Bank. And so I, you know, me and a few friends, we were like, oh, we're going to go. And it was general admission that was like $30. And I think VIP might have been uh, 70 or 100 bucks. I was like, well, I like the Migos. I will go and sit in a section and watch them perform their show and see all these 16-year-old white children mosh around as I can safely go home whenever I'd like. Were you in a luxury box? Of sorts, yes. Of sorts. Ooh. I saw Lane Kravitz in a luxury box once <laughs> at Madison Square Garden. He didn't have the scarf, and his, his dick didn't pop out like he did at that <laughs> one concert. But you had free hot dogs and sauerkraut all night long. I, absolutely. And I, it was free beer. I was like, oh, this is great. I think he's going to play Fly Away at some point. I'm very now, see, excited. The only time I ever like went to a concert, not the only time, but in, in recent memory, the last real time I went to a concert and was like in public seating, like general admission, uh, I went to uh, the Global Citizen concert that New York frequently does. This was in 2018, I want to say. And Cardi B was the headliner. And it was like the summer of Cardi B. And Janet Jackson was on stage at that point, And we thought there was a mass shooting. It was, oh. it was outside in Central Park, and we thought it was a mass shooting because a gate fell and made the sound that sounded in the distance like a gunshot, and then people were fighting, and then some people started stampeding, and then SWAT came into the area and said, everybody get down. Holy and, shit. and me and a girlfriend at the time, I had to literally drag her out of the area and run through Central Park thinking someone was going to shoot up the park, and it was the anniversary of the Las Vegas shooting. And so I already was someone who didn't really fuck with crowds like that to then have that experience. I never going into a yeah. general assembly type of situation. That's, a, that's like about as good an answer for why I don't like being in crowds as I could possibly imagine. Yeah, Short I, of it actually being a, a real tragic Yeah, you're incident. exempt like, from avoiding concerts. Absolutely. We didn't answer Luckily, ain't nobody got shot, though. Luckily, ain't nobody got shot. But that the is age good. is, stop going to fucking concerts and sitting in general, general admission once you think, like, you got a woman that you're going to marry in your life or a partner you're going to marry in your life. <laughs> once you, like, have somebody you love and shit could happen to you and they would be upset, that's when you stop going to, you know, you sit in the front row of concerts, all right? Like, when you like, 26 and, like, your high school sweetheart you've always had a crush on, it's like y'all are finally the same level of fine, that's when you stop going to concerts. Right, right then. That's when you stop sitting no, in the front row. No conscience at all. Not even. No, 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 no front row. No front row. Yeah. If you want to go see like Nickelback on their 40th year tour, <laughs> big fella, go do whatever makes your heart happy. I think if you're an old person in the front row at a concert, you can't look like you paid like 10 times what everyone else paid to get that front right. row seat. Right. Like you have to be dressed like a hobo. You All have to the be decisions about where I position myself at a concert for the, at least the last 10 years have been about my ears and not about being jostled, not about being too close or too far. It's about where the, the monitors are and where the speakers are. 
which is extremely old, but like I didn't wear even earplugs to shows when I was going frequently. You wear earplugs to shows now? I do now, man. If I'm going to go see like, <laughs> like see like my bloody Valentine, like which I did. Also, like, my who, is who, who, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? So my bloody Valentine is Amigos side project. Yes, uh, entirely it's, uh, true. Sort of more of a soundscape sort of thing. I I thought Tyler would be into British shoegaze. I guess I was wrong. Yeah, that's another one. That and Clarence Weatherspoon, two rare misses. I uh, if I'm a general <laughs> seating, I I position myself within the crowd to make sure I have a clear path to the to the shitter. So that if, <laughs> it's if, about, if the ballad, I thought you were going to say the exit. No, uh, you're just like you need to know where the bowl is. Yeah, because I need to know like if the new song comes on, where they're like, "Oh, this is a new song you haven't heard." That's when I know I can go piss. And also, like, also like the problem for me is like I like to listen to rap music and shit. And sadly, apparently, so do white teenagers in the suburbs. And so, if I'm going to go see like Lil Uzi Vert do his last album at Madison Square Garden. I sadly have to walk through a sea of 16-year-olds who maybe go to Xavier Prep. And I don't really want that problem because I also like to drink. And so if I got a beer and I'm sitting in general assignment and some kid who looked like Timothy Shalimar knocks the beer out of my hand, <laughs> I'm going to have to slap the shit out of him. And I don't want to do that because I learned yeah. when I became an adult that we get assault charges for shit like that now. And so, I, you know, and on top of that, I got to slap a white child in public. Y'all really just won't want to put me in jail. I don't want to do that. I want to parts of that. You know, I'm a very reserved man now in my late 20s. And so I sit in VIP. I don't let that, you know, that action come before me. I just kind of chill out and I can drink my beer and watch Lil Uzi Vert do a lot of cussing and I can go home. I think that is a, a fabulous philosophy. And we're so glad yeah. we had you on, Tyler Times. Grown you, lessons. Will you come back Tyler on Ricky sometime? Times. I'll come back. You know, if, if I got Rolf got to wear a flannel, though. Oh, yeah, this is, it's not a visual medium. That, I'm wearing just a normal bummy t-shirt. Well, yeah. I've got to wear a flannel. I, I, you know, all, all, and Tyler dressed up for this thing, too. No, no, I, yeah. I just always look good. That's different. <laughs> you know, that's, I just always look good, man. I roll out of bed. <laughs> I'm going to take this do-rag off. You might see the light of God under here, man. Come on. <laughs> Stop playing with me. Brandon Nix is a producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer, and our theme songs by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. Thanks to Roth, me, and Tyler this week. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com, too. And go read Tyler Tynes at GQ, my old stomping grounds. So he's glad very he's good. there. Go, go subscribe to GQ Magazine. Go ahead and pay my bills. Yeah, I, mean, I still love the GQ magazine. magazine. I still love reading the cover to cover. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.